Amen. That's a loud whistle, isn't it? That is a Second World War air raid patrol whistle from Liverpool. Now, you lived in Liverpool in the early 40s and you heard that whistle go. You would know what to do. You would gather up your children and you'd make a run for the air raid shelters and the underground. Unless you're my great uncle Ambrose, who declared to the family, no Germans driving me from my bed, and he would just stay in bed the whole time. Only had to restroom from glass surrounded all in one time, the family says, when a bomb went off nearby. You see, then you hear that whistle, the bombs are about to fall, the attack was about to happen, and you knew you had to take some action. Now, if you heard that whistle after the bombs had finished dropping and the Luftwaffe had disappeared, and then you heard that whistle, then you knew to run towards the whistle because that meant that they needed some people uh, helping them clear away rubble to rescue people who didn't make it to the shelters and were perhaps buried. It's a loud, clear whistle that can't be mistaken, that arrests your attention. And the truth is that, that as we come to this passage at the end of the book of Ephesians, this passage that we're about to read is intended to be by the Holy Spirit, just like that air raid whistle. Something loud and piercing and attention-getting, something that gives you a clear message that things are about to get bad, the bombs are about to drop, or somebody needs help. Gordon Fee insists that really all of the book of Ephesians leads towards this passage on spiritual warfare as he gathers up the threads of the teaching that he'd been given to this point and brings it into this culminating sentence of that we are in a spiritual battle and we need to take it seriously. You see, the passage really is a warning that the fight is on. The fight is on. Let's read this familiar passage together and see how we go. Finally, he's wrapping up, gathering it all together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our fight, our battle, the bombs that are dropping are not from flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. A couple of things that we need to 
keep in mind and have in our hearts as we go through this passage and as we leave this place. And then the first thing is that the fight is on and that spiritual warfare is real and it's serious. It's real and it's serious. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great speak about World War II, the great apologist and philosopher, he, he says when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to thinking about Satan and his minions, we can make one of two mistakes and people tend to fall into these categories. Either number one, we make Satan like a cartoon character. That's a bit of a joke and maybe something of mythology and something that goes along with, I don't know, goblins and flat earth. Or, on the other hand, we can swing on to the other side of things where we think that, that Satan is all-powerful and we need to be terrified and we need to, uh, to be, see him behind every scheme and, uh, that happens and every misfortune that befalls us. And we become afraid. But neither of those things is accurate. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to have an undue interest. At the same time, we need to realize that spiritual warfare is real and it's serious. There's all kinds of indications in this passage here which show just how serious this is. Like, there's like at least four. I'm sure there's more, but I uh, thought of four. Number one, you notice that the passage begins with this whole word, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. And the reason it starts that way is what he's trying to indicate to us is, listen, the temptations that you face, the, the battle that the enemy brings against you, uh, the struggles and difficulties and pressures of life that you will face are bigger than you are strong enough to do. It's so tempting for us to try and battle our temptations and, and deal with our sin and all of these things and take on difficult circumstances in our own strength. But he's saying, listen, you need more than that. Your strength is insufficient to do life as a follower of Jesus with what the enemy is going to bring against you. So what you need to do is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You know, as we go through this, the second thing I thought of, it's very easy for us to think, why on earth would Satan be worried and bother with little old me? Why does he care about me? Well, in some ways, he doesn't. You're not the focus. You're not quite that important to us, but you see, the problem is, what is important to Satan is that the church is the beachhead of Christ. The church, brothers and sisters following Christ together, is where God has established his landing to fight against the forces of evil. The church is the way that God brings his fight to Satan and all the forces of the enemy. So perhaps he doesn't care about you so much in that sense, but he for sure cares about the church. But there's not only that, but Satan's ultimate goal is, of course, to break the heart of Christ. And he knows that you belong to Christ. And so while he hates you, I suppose, because Satan hates all people, he hates Christ even more. And if the way in which he can hurt Christ and the Father is to attack and destroy and kill his children, then that surely is the best method that he can do. So don't think that just because you might feel insignificant, just because who, nobody even knows my name, my kids barely remember me, if you're in that kind of a spot, don't think that they'll let you off the hook because you see, you belong to Jesus and you are the church. Therefore, you are Satan's enemy and he is attacking you and you cannot opt out. 
we can't do like my great uncle Ambrose and just lay around in bed and hope that a bomb doesn't land too close. See, one of the things that you might notice as we, as we read through and as we work through uh, the, the, the armor of God, they're pretty much exclusively defensive pieces. The sword can be used for attack and maybe the shoes. But the rest are all defensive. You know why they're defensive? Because whether you want it or not, the enemy is coming for you. And you can't opt out. You can't say, you know what, I want Jesus and I want heaven and all that stuff, but I, I don't really want to be in this battle. Too bad for you. The enemy is coming. The bombs are dropping and we don't have a choice. So number one, you need to stand firm. Number two, he cares about you because you belong to Jesus. Number three, now look at verse 12. Verse 12 has all of these compounding words, you know, not against principalities and powers and forces of this dark world, all of these things. And the reason he does that is it's intended to shake us out of complacency and understand that this is really a battle. That's why he has all those words. It, it becomes a rhythm in our mind to understand that this is very serious. Satan is out to destroy you. You know, Daryl Wink, uh, oh, let me start this up again. Daryl Johnson refers to Walter Wink. Walter Wink is a progressive theologian, kind of on the liberal side of things, but he's done a lot of work on, on spiritual warfare. And he has this little formula which we would do well to remember. And the formula is this, P equals O plus I. E, P equals O plus I. And that is that demonic power comes from two sources, Wink says. The first is what he would call the outer institutions. These are things like rulers and governments and the military and corporations and, and all sorts of outside forces that bring pressure to bear on people that kind of run the world. And the I, the whole I in this thing, are, are, the, are the, the inner spirituality. Now, for Walter Wink, being sort of on the progressive side, he doesn't really believe in personal Satan and personal demons, but he thinks that there is an evil spiritual force that can come in and take over companies and governments and military and the justice system and all of these different things. But, you know, Daryl Johnson and, and Lynn Kohick and I and others, they say, no, 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 actually there is a personal evil. There is a Satan. There are demons. And they do still infiltrate these organizations. So for Wink, his action, is let's social action, let's fight injustice through social action, and that's certainly part of it, and we need to do it. But what we also need to remember is that these things and these forces are in fact personal, and there is a spiritual power to there. And so if we're going to attack systemic racism, let's say, we need to look at it organizationally for sure, and we need to do what we can to ensure that the legal system uh, fights against us and all of those things. But let us not forget that racism will never be eradicated until the hearts of people are changed. And that's where our prayer, that's where the spiritual warfare comes. First in our own hearts, that God would reveal to us ourselves racist attitudes, for example. And then we pray that it will be eradicated in the organizations of which we are a part. And we stand in the power of the Spirit in our governments, in our voting, in the places we work, and all of these things. And so you see, what we're going to have to do is need to understand that, that this is serious stuff. There is power. There is evil spiritual power in these outer organizations. And our calling as Christians is to ensure that we bring the power of the Holy Spirit to that organization to make sure that good is done and the enemy is defeated and darkness is dispelled.
Fourth thing that shows about how, how powerful this is and how we need to take it seriously is that the enemy, you look at verse 11, the attack upon us is intelligent and they're scheming and they're shrewd. Satan knows us and he knows our institutions and he knows our prejudices and he knows our ways and he knows ourselves, all of these things and he is shrewd in how he brings about the attack so that most of the time we don't even realize that we're under attack. Most of the time, we don't even realize that we're part of an organization that's maybe bringing oppression or injustice or whatever the case that may be to the circumstances around us. Because he's shrewd, he's sneaky, he's wise. He knows how to attack us. And so he attacks us many days and in many ways. Now, verse 13 says, look, you know, you've got to do all this stuff and put all this full armor of God so that when the day of evil arrives, that you will be ready. And so the scholars, they've got a bit of a, a debate on this whole thing. Some guys say, listen, what Paul's warning about is the ultimate day of evil, you know, when the great battle happens and Satan rising up and all of those things, and that's what he's talking about. Another guy is saying, no, 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 no. Uh, what it's saying is, is that he actually is attackers every day. It's probably some kind of a combination of the two. That is that Satan is always ready to attack us. He's always dropping the bombs. The ARP whistle should always be blowing. But there are particular days and there are particular times in your life when he intensifies the attack. We know that experientially, don't we? We understand that. That we're kind of susceptible to the attack of the enemy at all times. But there are certain circumstances, there are certain times when the attack becomes more focused and it becomes a little bit more successful. Times when we're a little bit spiritual weaker. Maybe for some of us, it's when we're distracted by the, the business of life or the troubles of work or something going on in our family. Sometimes for people, it's when you're physically and emotionally exhausted because you've been doing, doing things. It's been a hard week and it's been a, a, a tough day and you get home and, and over the weekend, it's when temptation really hits you up. For some of us, it's when you're alone. And you haven't had good fellowship for a while. And you feel like nobody really cares about you and nobody really understands you. And, and, and you're just sort of in that spot and the enemy in his shrewdness understands that this is the time that you're weak. For me, when I face disappointments, when I'm disappointed, uh, that's when I let my guard down. That's when I'm most susceptible to attack and, and, and having attitudes and taking up actions and all kinds of stuff that are, that are, that are not God-pleasing. And so we know that through these times in our life, days of evil, when we're just that little bit weaker, we're just that little bit more afraid, we're just that little bit more tired, we're just that little bit more discouraged, and it's during those days of evil that the enemy will come with a very focused attack. And he'll come at us in many ways. You know, if you look at verse 12 there, the word that's a wrestling, the, word is actually, the struggle is actually the word for wrestling. And the idea there is that Satan will come and, and, and even though really his ultimate aim is to destroy Christ, he will wrestle with you in a personal way in a particular weaknesses and in particular circumstances. He'll wrestle with you with your personality. Maybe you're somebody that, that wrestles with anger or somebody that struggles with lust 
Or maybe you're a person who have fear and fear can take a hold. Something bad begins to happen and all of a sudden you're, you're living out the worst case scenario and, and you're just imagining that things can't be worse and you're living all there, already there before it gets going. For some of us, your circumstances are that you're wrestling, you're in a really tough spot at work. You don't like your job. You don't like the people who are working with you. Whatever the case may be. And, and Satan comes and he'll wrestle and he'll try and twist your heart and twist your mind and twist your attitude. For some of us, it's, it's relationally. You know, we're in a difficult spot relationally and the enemy comes in and personally attacks. It's a wrestling. It's, it's something that he knows and you know and his attack is coming and it's strong. Sometimes though, it's like verse 16. It just kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. It's a flaming arrow of the enemy, a fiery dart and you're just sort of going along in life and all of a sudden, boom, it hits you out of nowhere and you thought everything was going fine. But the fiery dart of the enemy come and strikes you in the shoulder. You maybe are just in the, you didn't even realize you're in the bath. You're standing beside someone else who's really struggling. And out of the sky falls some evil that besets us. This is all the Holy Spirit trying to say to us, listen, the fight is on. The battle is real. And it's serious. One scholar put it this way, and it comes up. The whole enumeration is designed solely to instill the Christian a malignant dread, a shudder of horror, a portent of danger and conflict. The fight is on, and it's serious. And that's the first thing that in our Western 21st century lives that we need to think about and understand and take probably a bit more seriously than I at least often do. But it's not to strike a terror within us that is hopeless. Because the other message of this passage is not only the fight is on and it's serious and dangerous and real, but we have what it takes in Christ to be victorious in the battle. You see, one of the things that Ephesians has done throughout the book is lift up Christ, Christ above us, Christ victorious, Christ who is everything, and Christ in the heavenlies governing all things. And remember what we talked about back in Ephesians, that it says that, listen, you too are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And that's all part of Paul trying to say, listen, you don't have to be afraid. This is serious and it's bad and it's on and he's bringing it to you and you can't run away and you can't opt out but you can have victory in Christ. Verse 11 is really kind of interesting because what it literally says is, you have the power to stand. Amen. You have the power to stand. In your own strength, you don't. But as the Holy Spirit fills us up and as we stand in the blood of Jesus, you have the power to stand. And then verse 13, did you notice the, the, the hint of victory that's in there? It, twice he talks about that you're going to be able to stand. You know, when you've stood, then stand. And the second time he uses the word stand, they can't figure out what he means. He either means after you've done all the preparation, after you've heard the whistle, after you've put on the armor of God, then you are going to be able to stand no matter what the enemy throws against you. Or it could be, other scholars say, no, no, the second time he says that is that when the battle is all over for the day and other people may have fallen around you, you'll be standing. You will still stand in victory and the enemy will retreat for another day 
we'll come at us again. Either way, the point of verse 11 and the point of verse 13 is that you have what it takes. You can have the victory. Well, how is it that we have what it takes? How is it that we can have the victory? How is it that we can be confident in the midst of this? Because God has provided. God has provided. And he's provided at least two things. The first thing that he has provided is an army. An army. You see, one of the things that we don't pick up quite so easily as we read this English translation is that all of the language that's used here is plural language, is community language, is standing together language. We sort of have this idea when we read about the armor of God and we read this passage, you can sort of get this idea of the lone pilgrim, right? Or the lone soldier or, you know, whatever it is, American assassin out there by himself, whatever. Oh, you're not supposed to be watching those kind of violent moves, are Well, you have this idea that the fight's all alone, but it's because we misread the passage. This is a plural community passage. And what Paul is saying to us is that one of the main things that God has provided us in order to stand against the enemy and in victory is he has provided us with each other. Provided us with each other. And when we hear the whistle call, we can rush to each other and lift each other up and apply the medical assistance that is necessary. Apply the defense that's for the wounded brother or sister that's necessary. God has provided a army to work together. You know, the great secret of the Roman army is that they learned how to fight together. They learned how to maneuver in formation. And we've all seen, you know, the, the, the Roman shields and the, and the tostudos, you know, where they make the torches out of the whole thing, you know, with, with the top around it and they're all blocked in and ours can't get in so that they could storm city walls. And God has provided us an army, not just so that we can stand defensively, but so that we can storm the very gates of hell with defenses and regain victory through Christ our Savior. As the movie of the day says, we all need a wingman. And God has provided us with each other to fight in these battles as the enemy attacks. The second thing, of course, that he has provided is what this passage is famous for, maybe even Ephesians is famous for. He has provided the armor of God. The armor of God. There's a couple of different images that actually kind of get mixed together and there's a bit of a debate as to what Paul's emphasis is. Uh, most of us sort of imagine, and it's right that we'd imagine this, but we, we kind of think of Paul because there he's in prison. He's got these Roman guards around him. And he's looking at Roman soldiers that everybody would be familiar with and looking at the armor of the Roman soldier and, you know, using that as an illustration of, okay, this is what it's like and this is how we're kitted out in order to fight the enemy. And that's certainly part of it. But there's another root to this armor of God. Found mostly in, the, mostly in the book of Isaiah. And you can look at it in chapter 11 and chapter 59. And then it talks about God putting on his armor to fight battles. And the idea here is that Paul is saying is that, listen, the armor you've got is the very armor of God. It's the armor that God used. And therefore, he gives it to us as a gift to be used. And we need to also understand that it is a very potent armor. 
It's the armour of God himself. And so Paul kind of weaves both of these things together. And those with an Old Testament background would pick up on that. And then they'd see the Roman soldiers. And these things of this powerful armour of the very God is given to us to fight the battle. Now, he goes through with this great imagery, doesn't he? You know, the helmets of righteousness and helmets of salvation, breastplates of righteousness, all of these different things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get so caught up on the metaphor and imagining, well, it's this kind of shield and the helmet looked like this and all the shoes, you know, did they have spikes on, didn't they? All these different things. And I can get so caught up on the metaphor that I forget the reality that the metaphor is supposed to just give us the truth. So what I want to do today is maybe de-emphasize the metaphor a little bit and focus in on the things that those metaphors stand for. Now, as I said, as Gordon Fee pointed out at the beginning, what, what Paul does is he takes a bunch of the themes and a bunch of the words that he's had uh, throughout the letter of Ephesians, and then he brings them all up in this sixth chapter. And so he talks about righteousness. You can see it's appeared before. When he talks about truth. It's appeared before. When he talks about the gospel. It's appeared before. And those ways are defined for us what they are. So how is it then that God gives us this equipment to defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy? Well, the first thing he says that he gives us is truth. Truth. And what we need to understand here, it's talking about doctrinal truth and life truth. Is this two sides of, of, of truth? It's, it's, it's the doctrine. Don't believe what the devil says. There are all kinds of lies, and you, you know them, you can name them up, all kinds of lies that the enemy puts into our society about what success is, about what meaning is, about what purpose is, about what value is, about the good, the good aims for life, what they are, or about our sexuality, about our personality, about our looks, about our fashion. All of these things that the, the, the society is filled with these lies of saying what's important and who you are. And there's these doctrinal truths where God's saying, this is who you are, and this is how you live, and these are the priorities of your life. And so there's this doctrinal truth, but it's not just the truth of doctrine that keeps us safe. It's the truth of life, of living our life according to the truths of God's word. Taking what God says is important. Doing what God says is right. Making a priority what God says is a priority. In the everyday living decisions that we make. It's amazing to me how often I find myself thinking I've got a better way than God's way. I suppose it's because it's in the air we breathe and the water we drink, the, the lies of, of society, and oftentimes we, we don't even realize we're living out this lie until maybe somebody points it out to us or the spirit whispers in our ear or whatever the case may be. But the first thing is he gives us truth, doctrinal truth and life truth. The second thing he says is that, listen, one of the great defensiveness, defensive things against the enemy is righteousness. Living in right relationship with God and each other. You see, if our relationships are right, if things are clean and open between us and God and the Spirit's work in our hearts, and if I make sure that as best as I can, my relationships is good, and as far as I'm able to live in peace with all people, as far as it depends on me, and if my relationships are grounded in grace, 
and in forgiveness and in love and in kindness, in spite of how I'm being treated, then God says, listen, that right living, that righteousness, which, which is the righteousness of Christ, which Christ has given you and called you righteous because your sins are forgiven to make you right with God. And now if you live that out in your relationship with other people, the enemy is going to have a hard time attacking you because you're defended by a life of righteousness. And he says then, there's the gospel of peace. To remember that God has established peace with us through Christ. But then the, the emphasis of the book of Ephesians is of course the fact that we're one family. That we are at peace with one another. The things that divided us. The things that made us angry. The things that make us look and screw off our faces when we think of our other people. Those things have been done away with. Because we are one family and we shall live in shalom. Wholeness. Wholeness. All as things should be. And God says, I've given you faith. The ability to trust in my power. The ability to fight the way that God fights. I don't know about for you, but it's so hard for me to fight in the way that God fights with love and grace and generosity and kindness and joy and forgiveness. I so easily, when somebody comes against me, my first response, even after years of walking with Jesus, my first response is still trying to meet power with power and force with force. To imagine and think about vengeance that I'd like to bring upon people who do things against me. Cut me off. It's insanity. And yet I can so easily fall into fighting my battles with the weapons of the enemy instead of trusting in God that his way and the weapons of gentleness and kindness and goodness and self-control and all of those things are actually the weapons which will be successful in this fight against the enemy. Because I don't fight against flesh and blood. And you don't fight against flesh and blood. You fight against the spiritual powers behind that flesh and blood. Then he says, and I've given you salvation. The helmets of salvation... Knowing who you are in the Messiah keeps our thinking straight. You know, one of the greatest weapons of the enemy is the lie that you don't belong, that you don't deserve, that you're unworthy, that you've messed up too many times, that God is distant. He doesn't care about you anymore. You had your shot and you lost it. These are the lies of the enemy that so many of us wrestle with and live out. God says, no, 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 I have given you your salvation. You are mine in Christ Jesus. Don't believe those lies that the enemy wants to whisper within you. And then he says, I've given you the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. Yes, he means the Bible, for sure. And we go into the Bible and we search out the truth of scripture and we stand on the truth of scripture. Bearing in mind that when these guys wrote this stuff and Paul wrote this, they just had the Old Testament. The other stuff wasn't even hardly written yet. And we need to dig more into the Old Testament to know how to fight these battles a little bit. So certainly it's that, but it's more than that. It's also the in-the-minute guidance of the Holy Spirit who will give you a word to fight that spiritual battle. You know, there's a couple of different uh, Greek words for word. And a lot of the scholars make a lot of the word that's used here is the word rima, which is not a general message. 
But they, they sometimes use it. They're not a big difference, but sometimes if they're trying to be subtle, they'll use that word and they mean a specific word. And this is God saying that, listen, when, when you are under spiritual attack, the Holy Spirit will give you a word, will give you an answer, will give you some encouragement, will give you some insight. The Holy Spirit can very, very directly and personally help you fight the battle that you're in now. The Holy Spirit can come upon us as a church if we're being attacked and give us a word for the day that carries forward in the battle and assures us of victory. Because the Holy Spirit is not distant and far away. He is imminent. He is within us. He among us. And he guides us and empowers us and leads us and gives us a word at the time. I know most of you have experienced that, right? When you're praying for somebody and all of a sudden, boom, out comes this prayer that you hadn't really thought before. Or you're in some kind of a conversation with somebody. Maybe you're giving somebody some comfort because their life is shattered. Or, or maybe you've got to confront some kind of evil. And all of a sudden you find yourself saying things that, boy, you know, I wonder where that came from. Because the Holy Spirit will give us the word. Not just the written word that is so sure and we're established. But the moment by moment guidance that the Spirit can give us. And then finally... He gives us prayer. Pray in the Spirit. All kinds of prayer. You know, when Paul speaks about praying in the Spirit, in the Scriptures, most often he's talking about praying in tongues. It's really where the phrase is most often used. And it's, this, it's this intimacy when God gives you a personal, special language to communicate with him in it. And there's an intimacy there for those of you that have that gift, that when things are tense, when things are tight, and you don't know how to pray because you're so scared, or you're so worried, or you're so afraid, or whatever the case may be, and the Holy Spirit can give you a language, and it's God saying, I'm with you. I've got this. Don't be afraid. You have victory. But it's not only that. Praying in the Spirit is also for us Stopping and being quiet enough, long enough, that the Spirit can guide us in what to pray. It's okay. I understand. When things get tense, you sit down and you're like me and it's, blah, 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 blah. like you said, you'd whine for years, Joan, if something goes wrong. And you can, you can sit down and you can blast it all out and all those things and that's cool and that's God and, and it's just, you know, any time you're with somebody that's your best friend or somebody that you love and something's bad's happening, you're just going to, there it all goes and that's cool. But, but the thing to do is this, is then to be still for a while and know that he is God and to just allow the Spirit to still your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to whisper to your mind, pray this, remember that. Take deep inside your heart and your life this truth. To pray in the Spirit. Pray in this direction. Pray for this outcome. It's praying in the Spirit as the Spirit guides us in how to pray and what to pray. Hmm. It says to pray in the Spirit in all kinds of ways. You see, there are different ways that we can pray, aren't there? Probably a good guide for the different ways that we can pray the book of Psalms. 
Because in the book of Psalms, you've got prayers of thanksgiving. You've got prayers of request and petition. You've got prayers that are just simply glorifying God. You've got prayers of arguing with God because you don't like what's going on. You've got prayers of lament. Things really suck, Lord, and I don't know what to do about this. You've got prayers with dealing with enemies and how you feel like what you want to happen to them. And yet somehow it's got all happening, God. All of these different kinds of prayers. The book of Psalms is a marvelous, marvelous prayer book. And I bet you eight out of ten times when you're going through something, you can find a psalm that expresses in your heart exactly what's going on and the hopes of the disappointments or the frustrations or whatever it is that you're wrestling with. Okay, all kinds of prayers in the power of the Spirit. Pray with consistency and devotion and alertness. I don't know... uh, some of folks are gifted with prayer right away and for some of the rest of us it's kind of a discipline that we have to learn one of the things that's really helped me in, in, in a life of prayer is getting prayer partners you know meet with some guys in the morning have prayer groups and all those things you're all welcome to come to Thursday morning prayer time you know between 7 and 8 you can duck out 10 minutes early if you want but you know to pray with other people if, if, if it's a struggle for you then just get with people Get with a group, get with a a friend, a spiritual friend, somebody to pray with. It helps this consistency and devotion. You see, the enemy has this this, uh, formula, P equals O plus I. Power comes from organization and internal spirit. But God gives us another formula. P equals P plus S. Power for spiritual battle and warfare comes from the Holy Spirit and prayer. So God has provided us all these things that when that whistle blows, when the enemy comes, he has provided you, he has provided us with what's necessary to move victoriously through these difficult times. But we have a part to play. We have to play our part The battle is real and serious, but God, by his spirit in Christ, has given us everything that we need to be victorious in Christ. But we've got to play our part. We've got to be a body. We've got to be ready to blow the whistle when we need help. You know, it's one of the most frustrating things for me. Is that there's this tendency we have as Christians that when we need the body the most, we run away. When we've fallen into sin, we run away and hide. When we're afraid, we don't tell other people because we want to appear brave. When we're broken and we're really struggling and just anybody looks at us, we just start to cry, then we stay home because we don't want to be embarrassed. It's the great task and tactic of the enemy that when you are under the most attack, your tendency, your temptation is going to be to stay home, not go to Bible study, not call a friend, not come to worship, not do those things. And then the enemy has you isolated. You are hooped. Because you might have the shield in front, but he's going to get you from the back. God has given us the body to function as an army. And, you know, our wingman lets us down and we let each other down and sometimes we you know, feel like we're getting stabbed in the back and all. I understand all that stuff. I'm a big boy. I've been around. I've seen most of that stuff. But the truth is, by and large and overall, most of the time, 
when we're honest with the body and we come up and we say we're hurting, we say we're afraid, we say, I've really messed up, I've fallen into sin and I am so ashamed. Most of the time, the body will pick us up and defend us and heal us and protect us and move us back from the forward. So we have to do our part in being a part of the body of Christ, of the army of God. And then when it comes down to these pieces of armor, he's got all those words, put on, take up, receive these gifts in new, in new ways. There's, there's things that we have to do to put this armor with, upon us. We need to get into the word. We need to live out these things. We need to remember salvation. We need to understand what it is to live in right relationship with people. There's things that we have to do for that armor to work well. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to do them. So Paul kind of almost ends his letter with spiritual warfare. And he says, listen to you sophisticated 21st century, smart, tech-savvy, independent, pull-yourself-up-by-a-bootstrap, Instagram-life people. The fight is real. And so many of the things that we do are just not strong enough to take on the enemy's attack. Because the enemy is attacking, it's real and it's serious and it's inescapable. You are in the fight, admit it or not. The only question is, are you ready to fight in a way that leads to victory? Are we as the church for each other and for the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness for those that are captured by the darkness? Are we ready to fight in the way that God says to fight? The fight is on. It's real. It's serious. But God has given us what it takes for victory. Almighty God, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking this is kind of hocus-pocus stuff and, you know, that was back with superstition and Satan and demons and everything's just imagination and it's just society and all these things, but that isn't what your word reveals. Your word reveals that it's, it's very real and it's very serious and we are all in the fight. And we're in the fight together with each other and with you. And so we pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, as we rise from these seats, that we'd recognize that the fight is real and, and we have around us uh, fellow soldiers who are wounded, who are broken, who are missing in action, who are afraid, who are hurt, And may those of us who are strong for this moment gather around and defend and encourage and bring healing. And may we recognize that there's all kinds of people that the enemy has overtaken and the powers of darkness are oppressing and destroying and they haven't heard about Jesus. They don't have a clue that it's even a spiritual battle. 
And sometimes they're fighting the wrong thing or sometimes they're fighting the right thing but in the wrong way or not deeply enough because it's not the spiritual side. And, and Lord, we, we have insight into these things. So give us the courage and give us the love to not just play defense, but once we've stood and once we've prepared and once we've experienced some victory ourselves to, to march forward and rescue those that the enemy has in their clutches. Jesus, we're so glad that you are victorious and you are seated in the heavenlies and you seat us with you. And we're so glad, Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us and among us and around us and you lead us into battle. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that each of us would learn each day to take the time to stop and to pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers so that we can fight and gain victory for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters, the lost and all creation. To the glory of God through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.